0: Come to the scripture, let me ask you, please, to bow with me uh, to pray. Father in heaven, again, we are amazingly blessed to have that which is the very word of God before us. We pray that we would not take it for granted, but uh, God, that we would cling to it, listen to it, believe it. So help us, I pray, help our attention, uh, help our ability to think. Most especially overcome any resistance that we would have to believing, to trusting. Work all that in us, we pray now, as we hear this word of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn, please, to 1 Timothy, first Timothy, in chapter 5. I want to re- read verses 17 uh, through 25, First Timothy, in chapter 5, please. going before them to judgment but the sins of others appear later so also good works are conspicuous and even those that are that are not cannot remain hidden now obviously we come in our thinking our study our consideration of 1 Timothy to the end of chapter 5 that's why we take up these particular verses no particular agenda here other than they're here and they're for us to take up it's in the scripture in the word of god and so that's how we choose each week what we're going to consider. This is next, so we shall, we shall take it up. Um, you remember, I trust you remember, if you've been with us a while, that 1 Timothy is really a family letter. By that I mean, Paul writes to his son in the faith, Timothy, about life in the church. He says his purpose in writing Timothy is so that Timothy will know how to conduct himself, the church will know how to conduct itself as church, in the church. So, It's this family letter because Paul proceeds to say that we're the household of God. We're the household of God. That is God's very own family, God's very own dwelling place, if you will. Thus, it's a family letter. How are we to live in this family called the church? How are we to live together in this family where God is our Father, where we together are brothers and sisters? How shall we live together in that? And not only that, he says that we're the church of the living God, that is God who lives, dwells among us. So we oughtn't think that this is just sort of some club that we belong to on our own volition, if you will, but rather this is God's family. He calls us, he calls us out of the world to be his. He's the one who lives among us. It's God's family. It's the household of God, the church of the living God. And he says of us, of course, that we're a pillar and support of the truth. So we have the truth, we're to guard it, we're to protect it, we're to keep it pure. We're to believe it, of course, we're to live it, of course, and we're to take it, of course, to the world. We're the stewards, if you will, as the church, as the household of God. We're the stewards of the truth. Now, last Sunday, we took a little diversion from this since it was Pentecost Sunday. That particular Sunday marked out in the tradition, the life of the church as the Sunday in which we should think about... The coming of the Holy Spirit. And we did that not only because it was Pentecost Sunday. Most Pentecost Sundays we let slip by without mentioning. But, but last Sunday we took it up because we asked the question, well, how did we get to be this household of God? How did we get to be this pillar and supporter, pillar and buttress of the truth? And, and, and we realized that all of that happened because of the coming of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit being poured out upon us and that happened on this particular day in history of pentecost feast day in ancient israel and thus 10 days after jesus had ascended his disciples were gathered it was the day of pentecost and on the day of pentecost that particular feast day the holy spirit came upon the disciples of jesus was poured out just as he had been just as jesus had said he would be poured out just as the ancient prophets had had said he would be poured out There was no coincidence, obviously, that this happened on this feast day of Pentecost. Because you see, for centuries, as you remember, for centuries, offerings were made on this particular day. It was a harvest feast, and so animals were sacrificed, but also there was a meal offering, that is, an offering of cakes, if you will. A couple of loaves were offered to God waved before him, and they were made out of, you remember, fine flour, the very purity of God, but uniquely also made with leaven, that is yeast, put in. If you read through the various meal offerings in the Old Testament, you, you, you don't find leaven. They're, they're generally unleavened because leaven in the, in, in, in the world of sacrifice, in the world of offering before God, represents impurity. So century after century after century, whether they knew it or not, waving before God, they were saying a day is coming when you, the very pure God, Holy One, will be mixed with us, the unholy ones. And of course, that can only take place because of the work of Christ, because he comes to cleanse. And so when the Holy Spirit comes upon a people, he joins them, reconciles them to God, the pure one with sinners. How? How can that happen? Because he comes and as he comes he brings new life. As he brings new life there comes faith in that. Faith in whom? Faith in Christ. It's very when he died that we might be cleansed and so we're reconciled to God. And all of that was pictured century after century. Or at least it was to be whether they celebrated it or not. It was to be. And on this day all of it came to fruition. The picture was shown in reality in real time, real life as the Holy Spirit poured out upon this people. God reconciled With people, the pure one, the holy one, with sinners like us. And all that because of Christ. And it's there you see that the very Spirit of God lives in and dwells among us. Thus we become the household of God, the dwelling place of God. He dwells among us. He dwells within us. And he is our Father. And there you have it. But not only that, we become this pillar and support of the truth as well. Because this Holy Spirit who comes, you remember, is called by Jesus, the Spirit of truth. And this one who is the Holy Spirit comes to live within us, yes, to reconcile us to God through Christ, yes. But also, he comes to bear witness, to testify of Jesus, to glorify him. And so he comes to teach of Jesus, he brings the very truth of Jesus to us. We know he. He brings the very truth of Jesus to us through the scripture, which he, working through um, human beings, men, wrote this. This is the very word, if you will, of God, the word brought forth by the Holy Spirit. God breathed. And so he, he brings the very truth of Jesus to us. And thus we then, not only being the household of God, the very dwelling place of God, but also then because the Spirit of God lives among us, lives in us, we then, become this these people who know and bear witness of the truth. So that's who we are. Paul says, now how are you to live as that, the household of God, the dwelling place of God, the pillar and support of the truth. And he lays this out to Timothy, who happens to be this pastor in this church in ancient, in ancient Ephesus. Now, as, as, as Paul lays this out, of course, he says now, now there'll be family relationships. And so you remember the. Timothy, this young man, was to treat, Paul said, older men like fathers and older women like mothers and, and, and younger brothers, that is his peers even, because he was young, as, as, as younger men, as, as, as brothers and younger women, as sisters in all purity, you remember, it being pure with the women in the church. And so we realize that, that, that there's a sense in which, because we're the family of God, these family relationships make sense to us, even in this context, that, that older treat the younger treat older as parents, if you will, that older treat younger as children, that peers treat one another as brothers and sisters and all of that. So we see that in the midst of that. And there's order in this family as well. There's order in this family because there's there 's leaders that are called out of the family to to lead and, and, and they 're called elders and so Paul takes that up here, takes that up here, this sense of elders and we talked about elders before, and when we were in Chapter three, you remember there was this sense of of um, uh, of, of qualifications, spiritual qualifications uh, for elders and, and and we made note then that this notion of leadership in the church having elders to lead was not necessarily a new thing. We, we, we looked at its Old Testament roots of the elders of Israel, the, 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 the older ones, the mature ones in ancient Israel who counseled and, 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 and oversaw life in the tribes there in ancient Israel. And we also saw that when Paul um, planted churches. He appointed elders in every church to oversee them. And so so here we have Paul writing to Timothy saying saying that this is important in the life of the church. This is how the church is governed. And so you should have elders. And he talked to Timothy about those spiritual qualifications that elders were to have. And, and now he comes back to this subject in, as well. And if, if I could just sort of outline these verses for you. Um, uh, verses uh, 17 and, and 18 he, he speaks of of, of of elders, this division of elders, of those who rule and those who teach. And basically he says that you should teach those, you should treat those who teach like you treat your ox. I appreciate that. Verse 19, uh, he talks about what happens if there's an accusation against an elder. And verses 20 and 21, uh, he talks about what happens if there's an elder who persists in sin. Um... Then in verse 23, parenthetically, knowing um, Timothy's constitution and probably even knowing something of the drinking water in Ephesus, uh, uh, tells Timothy to, to take care of your health and so it would be wise for him to drink a little wine as well as the water and uh, um, that will help him. Um, you know, one of the fascinating things about that little expression that we mustn't miss is that often... People argue that the New Testament wasn't written by the people who claimed to have written it. In this case, Paul. But notice, just this little sentence thrown in there. You must not missed these personal, very personal references. Here's a man who knew the one to whom he was writing really well. He said, Timothy, I know what upsets you. And so here's a help to you. It, it sort of comes out of the blue, although he was probably having trouble with elders But but it comes a bit out of the blue at that point. You know, why does he say this now? And and in the ESV that I read out of, it's in parenthesis because it's rather parenthetical. Uh, But but, but, but here we have, so, but but he says, Timothy, I really know you. This will help you. This is a very personal letter. This is from a man who knows, from one man who knows the other really, really well. Paul had a relationship with Timothy. He lays this down, very practical, very practical advice to him. But then in in verses 23 and then, um, 20, uh, for, I'm sorry, 22, 24, and 25. Uh, Paul lays out something about the choosing of elders. And then in verses 24 and 25, he, he, he tells something about how to choose elders. But, but, but more than that, I think, and this will apply to us more broadly, he gives us all, Timothy included, but all of us, both a warning and an encouragement. So, so that's how we lay out. I want to just take up this whole notion of elders relatively quickly because this could sound self-serving if I spend too much, uh, too much time there. But it begins with this distinction, as you'll notice, between elders who rule, I think if you have the NIV, it says for those who direct the affairs of the church, that's the sense of ruling, to direct the affairs of the church. It says, let the elders who rule well uh, be considered worthy of double honor especially, now that little word especially might be better uh, translated particularly, those who labor in preaching and teaching. And so you you see this distinction. We, We have this distinction. If you hang around Presbyterian types long enough, you know the word Presbyterian just simply means elder. If you hang around Presbyterians long enough, you'll find this distinction between ruling elders and teaching elders. Now, they're not mutually exclusive. That is to say, ruling elders can teach and teaching elders rule. But there's this primary breakdown between the two. It appears here, even in ancient Ephesus, as Paul writes, Timothy says there are those who rule and those who teach. Uh, and so we have that. So there's elders who kind of direct the affairs of the church, the, the mature ones, regardless of their age, mature in wisdom and being able to, to, to really direct the church to discipline, to pray for people, to counsel. Uh, to, to to establish a climate in the church that allows for freedom, where the scripture allows for freedom, that, uh, that 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 is strict, if you will, where there's strictness in scripture, where where elders rule, if you could put it this way, using a biblical phrase, in an understanding way. So elders are to rule; and they oversee the life of a church as one who manages well. Thus, when the qualifications for elders are given. Paul says that an elder should be a man who, who, who manages his household well. That, that sense of it, because this is a household, and so there's, there's, there's consistency one to the other. If he manages his household well, manage the church well, and so it's important in that regard. And so let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially, that is, particularly those who teach. So the ones who teach are worthy of double honor. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means that all elders are worthy of honor, But those who teach in this context are worthy of a second honor. And quite frankly and bluntly, that second honor is that they get paid. There's an honor which leads to an honorarium. All elders deserve honor. For instance, in in Hebrews in chapter 13, the author of Hebrews writes of these elders as well. He writes, Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they're keeping watch over your souls as those who have to give an account. And so this, this, this honor for elders is this respect that they deserve as elders, as the ones God has called to lead the church. Now, that isn't an absolute obedience. That isn't an absolute submission, obviously. Never let an elder lead you into sin. But there's this sense of leadership here. And so the apostle, so the author of Hebrews says, listen, you're, you're, you're to, to, to obey them. And because they have a particular charge, and that charge is keeping watch over your souls. Now, if you're an elder, you know what that phrase really means and how that grips you. And you realize all of a sudden how inadequate you feel, you realize how difficult that's going to be. You wonder why it is that they've chosen me to, to, to do this, to, to watch over the souls of people. But but, but but that's the very calling, you see, of one who is an elder. And so 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 love them, care for them, uh, obey them, respect them, because they have a charge that's unimaginable, really. And, and then that the, the one to whom they're accountable isn't you, it's God. And so he says, obey your leaders, submit to them, for they're keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. And then the, the next sentence, let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. In other words, think of yourselves at least, because you see if you have happy elders, it'll go happy for you. Because they'll really desire to serve, they'll really desire to work, they'll really desire to care for your souls. And you need this care. And so, so treat them well and they'll care well for you because it'll be a joy, really, to, to care for you. That's Paul's there but then he says there are those who teach and they deserve this extra honor uh, to, to be paid and, and the illustration comes out of their civil law on how to treat animals he said listen when your ox is is, is threshing uh, you, you you let you let him eat and so treat your pastors like that treats the one who teach uh, like that uh, um, pay them and, and you do and, and we appreciate that Um There are some, and I just raise this because we know traditions in the church that believe there should be no paid clergy. I have no idea where that comes from. I know I have a certain vested interest uh, in saying that. But 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 I really have no idea where that comes from in the scripture. The Levites were paid. Paul himself, you can read in First Corinthians chapter nine, says that he deserved to be paid. He didn't accept it in every situation, most especially in Corinth, because he had other reasons not to. And so there'd be reasons for a pastor to decline uh, being paid. But he says, listen, this is the way this is set up. So this is really the way it ought to go. There's nothing uh, unethical and moral uh, tainted about paying a pastor or about receiving. Uh, that income. Enough with that. Then, what happens though when there is an accusation to be made against an elder? That is that elder isn't eldering as he ought to elder. What happens in that particular case? Now the apostle says, here's something to think about in the context of this family. He says, don't entertain accusations against elders casually that it has to be two witnesses of this. Now, that was always the sense in the scriptures for justice to be done. There had to be at least two witnesses, two coming to make this accusation. Uh, Because, you see, it's easy to criticize, always easy to criticize those in leadership. They lived, we live, in a highly critical culture. Everybody is an expert on everything. And everybody has a talk show to call into to argue with the other experts about that. I mean, that's just how we live. we're critical about about everything. There are times, this is my personal situation, where I can't listen to certain programs because it's so critical. I just get burdened down with all the experts and everybody who's right, that is the caller, and everybody else is wrong, which is everybody else. It just weights you down after a while. And Paul's saying, listen, one of the most damaging things in the life of a church, most damaging thing in the life of the family, is for the family members members to be overly high or highly critical of those who lead. There's a sense in which he says, listen, it's a hard thing to lead. It's a hard thing to care for the souls of others. It's a hard thing. If it were easy, then then, then we wouldn't need these people. But, but but it's a difficult thing because because well, because we're dealing with the souls of people. We're dealing with what really matters in the context of, of their, their their relationship with God and eternal life. And there's enemies, Satan and demons and, and the world and, and our own flesh and our own sinfulness. Plus, these men are sinners themselves and they have families and obligations, responsibilities and, 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 and all of that. And it's just a difficult thing. And, and so he's saying, don't be highly critical. In fact, when I talk to people, when people call me for advice or uh, other pastors or I'm teaching in various places and they ask questions about, about the life of our church. I said, there's two things that I think has maintained our church most specifically and most helpfully. I'll tell you the other one in a few minutes if I remember it. But, but the, the first one is that we do not have here at Grace CPC a highly critical congregation. I, I don't know that my constitution could stand it. That's probably why you're so nice. But But we just simply... You simply aren't critical like that. But, but there have been in the history of the church, I don't think it's, it's pervasive, but, but certainly in the history of the church, uh, all kinds of difficulties. In fact, John Calvin, who knew a great deal of difficulty in his own ministry, uh, wrote this in the 16th century. He says, None are more exposed to slanders and insults than godly teachers. I must not be a godly teacher. Um, this... Come not only from the difficulties of their duties, which are so great, that sometimes they sink under them or stagger and halt and take a false step so that wicked men may find occasions of finding fault with them. But added to that, even when they do all their duties correctly and commit not even the smallest error, they never avoid a thousand criticisms. It is indeed a trick of Satan to estrange men from their ministers so as gradually to bring their teaching into contempt. In this way not only is wrong done to innocent people whose reputation is undeservedly injured, but the authority of God's holy teaching is diminished. And again, one of the, one of the great things for us is the demeanor. Your demeanor is a worshiping family of God, not to be highly critical. Now, that doesn't mean you can't disagree. That doesn't mean you can't call and say, Bill, why did you teach this? Or, or to an elder, why are you doing this? Or, or have an idea about that? Or is this the best way to approach that? All oh, that's wonderful and fine, and you do that. And you do that in a great way. That's what's so wonderful. Uh, when, when, when I get an email, or we, get, we get notes from people asking questions or perhaps suggesting a different way to do something. It's, it's never critical. It's never like, oh, you idiots. How could you ever think that God would lead you to do this? It's, hey, how about this? Or, hey, how about that? It's it's a great way that you have to communicate. And and that creates tremendous joy in those who lead. And not only do they want to lead, but they want to listen because of the way you speak. And it's now more than two decades relationships of being able to do church, live family together because there's this lack of critical spirit among us. And, And I think what brings that to us I hope what brings that to us is that we really understand each one of us who we are before God, whether you're a leader, whether you're not. And that as we all understand ourselves to be sinners in the sight of God without hope, except the huge except in his sovereign mercy. Sovereign, he's the one who gives it and he's the one who chooses to give it. We, we don't. We don't... In, impinge upon it he he gives it sovereignly and we know that we only get it because he's graciously sovereignly been merciful and so knowing that about myself you knowing that about yourselves we don't put ourselves above the other but we're all in this together has saved sinners so paul says listen be very cautious about receiving accusations against elders. Make sure it's really real. But well, what if it is? I mean, it could be. What if it is that an elder isn't eldering? What is it? if an elder is in sin? What if an elder is wrong? Then more two or more come and say, listen, this is the situation with this elder or this pastor. How, how, how then do we take it up? And certainly, Paul doesn't put it explicitly here, but he would follow the pattern that Jesus talked about in Matthew chapter 18 and says, well, then these elders need to go to the other elder and say, listen, this is what's happened. You've done wrong and and seek repentance. Well, what happens if that elder doesn't repent? What happens if that elder persists in sin? Notice what Paul says, verse 20. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. And you say, Paul, that's not very nice. And Paul would say, you don't know how important this is. It's no small thing. If an elder isn't eldering, if an elder is in sin, and if an elder won't repent, and if an elder persists in that sin, to be honest, it's bigger in the family than an individual member in the family. And so if that individual, if that elder who's public, that elder who's leading persists, you need to make known that publicly so that everyone will know not to follow that elder. And the other elders will get goosebumps and realize what all this means. Then Paul goes on and he says, listen, because this is so important, don't prejudge. It's really important when you're an elder and another elder is charged with something. If you're Timothy, this young pastor, and one of your elders is charged with something, it would be very easy to say, well, I like that guy. He's my friend. We golf together, you know. Uh, he's helped me with this. He's done that. We're, we're friends. So so uh, I'm not really going to take this seriously. And Paul says, no, 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 Timothy. This is your role here in the midst of this. You need to take this seriously. You need to set all those personal things aside. Don't prejudge good or bad, right or wrong, yes or no. You need to take this up seriously before God. That's why he puts it as he does. He says, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and the elect angels. And you go, where do the elect angels come into all this? Well, they were the ones who always floated around the throne of God singing, holy, holy, holy. And so when Paul makes that, 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 that statement, he's saying, listen, Timothy, forget about the fact that you're in the presence of this man. You're in the presence of God. And, and shake a bit in your boots and do this the right way because you're not here to make him happy. You're here to please God. And so that's how serious this really is. And he says, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and the elect angels, I'll charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. And then in verse 22, he begins this this notion about about saying how important this leadership is. So he says, now, don't um, be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. He says, listen. Don't be hasty in the laying on of hands. And that is that laying on of hands is the sense of ordaining leaders, ordaining elders. He's saying to be very cautious about that. Don't be hasty about that. Because he goes on to say, nor take part in the sins of others. Uh, others may want to do this, but Timothy, don't do that. That would be taking part in their sin to, to, to have a man be a leader, be an elder in the church before his time. But not only that, Timothy, realize this that if you lay on hands of an elder and that elder doesn't eld well, that an elder sins. And there's a certain sense in which you're responsible as he is responsible. He's responsible for his own sins, but remember, you're the one who endorsed him. You're the one who took him before the church. You're the one who laid hands on him. So be very, very cautious, Timothy, about this, lest, lest you're complicit, lest you fall into this sin, if you will with him i can't help but think of eli the priest you remember and his own sons he, he knew about his sons and their sin his sons were not good priests and you remember that god spoke a word to this priest eli he did it through samuel even when samuel was a young boy first samuel in chapter 3 we read And the Lord came and stood calling at other times, Samuel, Samuel, and Samuel said, Speak, for your servant hears. Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I'm about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. On that day I will fulfill against Eli, that is, Eli the priest, all that I've spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I declare to him that I'm about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. And so there's a sense in which, you see, Eli was involved because he didn't restrain his sons. He was responsible. He didn't restrain his sons. His sons were responsible, yes, but Eli too. And Paul's saying to Timothy, Timothy, if you lay hands on someone who shouldn't be an elder and they persist in sin later on, remember, that's an issue for you as well and for the church. And so he says then, keep yourself pure. And then he goes on, and this is what I want to camp on for just a few minutes for all of us, these last couple of verses. He goes on with some very practical counsel. Practical counsel in the one sense of of, of how it is that Timothy is to, to help choose these elders, but also practical wisdom counsel on how Timothy is to keep himself pure. Verse 24. Paul says, the sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are are not cannot remain hidden. Notice what Paul's saying here, something very practical. We think, oh yes, that's true. He said, listen, the sins of some people are conspicuous. You see them and you go, that's not an elder. Right? Let's know that. They're just conspicuous. I see it. Whew, he's off the list. But then he says, but the sins of others appear later. And we go, oh, yeah, that's the problem, isn't it? That's the real problem. The problem is that at the moment in our observation, that's really the best we can do. The best we can do is to talk to them, hear what they believe, how they think life ought to be lived, they think about the gospel, what their doctrine is. We talk, but we observe. But we know that in the talk, we can't get it perfectly. We know that in the observation, we may not get it perfectly. And we know that while some lives look great later on, and we know this by experience, we've seen later on down the road, there are hidden sins, things we didn't even know about. Maybe things that didn't exist at the moment, but come along later. And then we go, ah, oh, here we are. So Paul says to Timothy, take your time, buddy. Take your time. Make sure you get this right. This is that important. Don't just do this every year because it's something on your church uh, bylaws that you have to do. Don't, don't just do this because it's something that, that, that's coming up next to do. Think about this, Timothy. Make sure you get this right. Don't be hasty in this because you realize it's just some, it's as obvious this isn't another, but but, but but on some you go, oh, I think so, but, but, but you just don't know. So give it time to play out. But then he says something too, verse 25. He says, so also good works are conspicuous and even those that are, that are not, cannot remain hidden. He says, he says so there's some good works that are so conspicuous. You go, Yeah, that's great. Look at that. That fits. But then others you go, I just don't know. We'll wait a while. They'll pop up. You'll see them. They'll eventually rise. You'll see them. Practical wisdom on choosing elders. But practical wisdom, too, in the context of our own life. Because on the one hand, I think there's this warning to us. There's this warning that says that secret sins will not always be secret. Notice how he puts it. The sins of some people are conspicuous, but the sins of others appear later. See, there's always that danger, isn't there? The danger of that which is secret popping up later. Remember that old biblical expression that comes from Numbers chapter 32: "But your sins will surely find you out." Now, the context there's an interesting one. The context, really, in the book of Numbers, is that the ancient Israelites are about to enter the Promised Land. They're leaving the wilderness wanderings. They're beginning to go into the land of uh, of, of promise. And there's a couple of tribes, Reuben and Gad, that are on the let's see, they would be on the east side of the Jordan River, and, and they say, "We want to stay here." And Moses says, oh, I know what, you want to stay on this side of the Jordan because the, the, the tribes on the other side of the Jordan are in battles all the time. They're having to fight to get their land. You want to stay here because it's easy. And, and, and the other tribes, Reuben again, say, no, 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 that's not it at all, Moses, not really. Uh, we want to stay here because it's better land for us. Here's the deal we'll make. Let us set up with our, with our cattle and our sheep and our families let us set up and then we'll leave. We'll get our arms and we'll leave and we'll go to the other side of the Jordan and we'll fight with our brothers. And we won't come back home until after all the fighting is done. And Moses says to them, okay, but if you don't live up to your vow, your sin will find you out. Now it's interesting. He doesn't say we'll find out about your sin, but he says your sin will arise And it will prove who you really are. That you've lied. And then you won't be able to have the land you want. There's a sense in which this warning to us from God, all of us. And it's a solemn one because we know our own hearts. We know our secret sins. We know stuff about our own hearts that nobody else knows. Now, I know husbands and wives, you'll go home and over lunch, you'll look at your husband, you'll look at your wife, and you'll say to the other, do you have any secret sins? And and your spouse will say no. They're lying. Now, don't expect them necessarily to tell you all that stuff. It's you know, just life. We all have this, and we know it's sad. But but, but but remember that that's there. And how do you deal with that, really? What's the warning here? The warning here. Is, is don't let those secret sins remain secret, first of all, at least between you and God. Because, you see, the problem with these secret sins is we've become so accustomed to them, and we, we really abhor them, perhaps, that we place them over here. We do them, we think them, whatever the sin is, and it's over here, we keep it secret, we keep it quiet, and we don't even tell ourselves that that's sin. And it just sort of lives there and mounts up it sort of becomes like, like, like so much a part of us that so just, it's just there. It's that imaginary friend that's not so imaginary. It's there. And so what we need to do in the context of that is in the midst of those to go before God every single time that secret sin arises and say to God, this is sin, I know it. I'm sorry, forgive me, help me. And then when appropriate... Allow that secret sin to be as public as it needs to be to help you, a trusted friend. And that, you see, is the way those secret sins become uncovered and they become not safe, because sin is never safe, but not as dangerous as the secret sin might be that someday it will be be known. It's always known to God. But, but take care of those. And Timothy, Paul says, keep yourselves pure. How do you do that? Remember, Timothy, this is the way it is with people. Some sins are obvious, yes, but some sins aren't. Timothy, even in your own life, Bill, in your own life, us in our own lives, know that these sins can be secret. Deal with them. Don't let them stay secret. Confess them. But then he gives us, I think, at least for me, I hope I'm not taking this out of its context. But for me, a tremendous word of encouragement. He says, so also good works are conspicuous. And even those that are not cannot remain hidden. In other words, don't you ever wonder? Don't you ever wonder, what I'm doing really matter? Is it really helping anybody? Does anybody really care? You know, this is Father's Day, and you wonder as a dad sometimes... Anybody care what I've really done, or or moms? Anybody, anybody really care? Does it make any real difference what I'm doing? Uh, there was a psalmist, and it's in Psalm 73, a common one, a well-known one to us. In Psalm 73, where the, the psalmist wonders about his life, he says, "Truly, verse one: Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked." For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. That's been the combination I've been going for, by the way, my whole life. Uh, fat and sleek. Um, I'm halfway there. Um, they're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garland. He says... Uh, their eyes swell out toward uh, through uh, fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heaven. Their tongue struts against the earth and, and all of that. And then finally, the psalmist in verse 13 says, All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands. In innocence, for all day long, I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. Uh, if I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your of your children, and so you get this sense, you see, that he's thinking. You know, I've I've done all this, and let's give him the benefit of the doubt. He's done it all with a good heart. He's done it all desiring to please God. But but we all have felt this way. We're called as believers in Christ to do good works. We read this morning as, as part of our responsive reading this from the Epistle of of um, Paul to the Ephesians, verse ten was for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. And we know we're not saved by our good works. But we know that once saved, God calls us to live holy lives. He gives us a spirit to enable us to do that. We we desire to do that. And, and, And yet here we are. And we wonder, am I really doing any? Does anybody really care? Does anybody really, anybody really see? Not that we're doing it to be seen by people. Jesus, as we remarked in our offering time, said that we're to do these good works, if you will, in secret, so that our Heavenly Father will reward us. But you see, that's the point. That's the good news in that. That's the encouraging thing in all of this, is that God really does see. And he's the one who rewards he really does see, says, you know, Paul, to Timothy, he says, listen, Timothy, uh, some of the things you do are conspicuous, and people plant you on the back for that, and they say, that's great, and all that. But he says, even those good works that aren't conspicuous can't really be hidden. Why not? Because God sees. See, your pastor may not see all that you do. To be honest with you, I love you, but I have no clue most of the time what goes on around here. But I know stuff does. I see the end of it. I see the results of it. I get, I get thank you notes from people that I don't even know have been helped. Because they haven't been helped by me. It's been by somebody else. But they're writing a note to the church saying thank you for this. Thank you for that. Thank you for these things and all of that. And it's, 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 it's wonderful. <clears throat> but I don't know who does them. So I don't know that you're doing all these things. But I know that you are. And there's Sunday school teachers every week, week after week after week, teaching Sunday school, as nursery workers week after week after week, changing diapers and wiping noses and everything else. Uh, there you are, caring for people and, and caregivers know as you give care that the one to whom you give care doesn't always say thank you. And parents know that your kids don't always that's an overstatement, say thank you. a um, day will come over. We had one just two weeks ago write us a note, one of our own, which was a good thing. Say Thanks for this we go oh you noticed wow you know that's a framer but um but, but you know you just you just you do it and you live your life and it's easy to become discouraged but Paul says to Timothy listen you're looking for elders, their good works will become conspicuous. Eventually you'll see, wait to see. But but in our own lives, we realize that yes, there are those that are hidden, but God always sees. That's the encouragement, I think. Timothy, keep yourself pure. Bill, keep yourself pure. Church, keep yourself pure. Uh, How do we do that day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, decade after decade, for the whole life? That we live, how do we keep ourselves pure? It does become a struggle. It can become difficult. And the apostle says, listen, I see. God says, I see. They're conspicuous to me. They'll be conspicuous either now or later to everyone. So keep this up. And Jesus says that our Father who sees us in secret rewards us. And we need not be turned off by that notion of reward at all. Because you see, these rewards are intrinsic, not extrinsic. In other words, to give somebody $1,000 for writing a good essay is an extrinsic reward. It's not really related to that, $1,000 in an essay. To give somebody a college scholarship for writing a good essay, oh, that fits. That's what I really want. I really want this academic life, so I'm writing this this essay. And, And see, God gives that to us, which is intrinsic to it. Thus we said at the offering time, when we give offering, the reward is that people are helped. Yes! The offering for praying in secret, not to be seen by men, is is that God hears our prayers. Yes! See, that's it. The the reward to fasting isn't that other people pat us on the back, but the reward from God for fasting is that our meditations while we fast will be sweet. Yes! See, that's the intrinsic reward. C.S. Lewis, in his essay called The Weight of Glory, puts it like this. We must not be troubled by unbelievers when they say that this promise of reward makes the Christian life a mercenary affair. There are different kinds of rewards. There is the reward which has no natural connection with the things you do to earn it and is quite foreign to the desires that ought to accompany these things. Money is not the natural reward of love. That That is why we call a man a mercenary if he marries a woman for the sake of her money. But marriage is the proper reward for a real lover is not a mercenary for desiring it. The proper rewards are not simply tacked on the activity for which they're given, but the activity itself in consummation. And thus, you see these good works that we do, the reward is this. Well done, my good and faithful servants. Now that's nice to hear, but it's the second part that thrills the soul When God says, enter into the joy of your master. What does that mean? It means that these works that we do that God is seeing make him happy. Bring him joy. And he's saying, here I am in great joy. Now come join me in my joy, in the fullness of joy. That's it, you see. And so he says to Timothy, keep your life pure. Yes, here, how this is how you choose elders, but keep your life pure. Because even when your good works, Timothy, aren't conspicuous, aren't known to anybody, nobody says thanks, nobody pats you on the back, know that God is watching and he's the rewarder of this And he will say one day that which will thrill your soul. Well done. Paul writes to the church in Galatia and he says to them concerning their works this in Galatians in chapter six. He says, and let us not grow weary of doing well for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do a good to everyone, particularly, especially to those who are of the household of faith, these good works that we do to love one another, to help one another. He says, listen. they will reap this well done from God. Keep yourself pure. Let's pray. Father in heaven, That's our heart's desire that, in fact, uh, we would be kept pure. Encourage us, I pray. May we confess all of our sin, most especially that which is secret. And May we live in such a way that we realize that we're in your very presence. And you see all of that which goes unnoticed by others, never goes unnoticed by you. So encourage us, I pray, with these words. Father, we pray for the works that our kids do, our youngers do this week in St. Louis. And we pray that they're a blessing to the leaders and the children there. So be with them, please. Strengthen them, keep them, help them. Father, we pray for Alan and Connie Nagin as they go this week to... Uh, the Children's Haven Orphanage in Mexico. And we pray that you would be with them as they as they lead this group of, of uh, students from Newton. And Father, that you would be with them and bless them and that their work would be conspicuous there. And the work that they do that isn't conspicuous would be known to you and that you would bless them. And Father, we pray for our five loaves board, Father, as as they're seeking wisdom, and I pray for that ministry and give you thanks for it and pray that we can be of help to women uh, in need there. So lead someone to that house, Father, that will be blessed, that will be blessed by it. Father, our blessings are rich and deep and beyond what we can even imagine, and we give you thanks for your kindness to us. We give you thanks for the marriage yesterday of Andrew and Rachel Pollock. What a blessing. Thank you for that, God. We give you thanks for the birth of Holland Regeer. And, uh, Father, we're grateful for her life be with Kendon and Suzanne. Bless them, Father, as parents. Father, we pray that we would be a church that would bring you glory, would please you. We need you. So please, we pray, pour out your blessing, your wisdom, your strength, your help to us, even as we live in your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand for the benediction. <clears throat> Please receive this as God's benediction. And now to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless before his glorious presence and that with great joy. To only wise God and Savior Jesus Christ, to be glory, dominion, majesty, and power both now and forevermore. And together let us sing. For the beauty of the earth, for the glory of the skies, for the love which from our birth over